Guys, you know, sometimes I, I say, hey, we're really going to have to think hard this morning. And uh, this is going to be a morning where we've got to think hard. Now, it's not because the topic is confusing at all. It's not because it's hard to understand. But we are going to be dealing with some blind spots. Okay, blind spots are hard to see, right? Or we wouldn't call them blind spots. So we're going to have to think this morning. Uh, we're going to have to take an objective look at some things in the Word of God and get those truths into us uh, without them being something we're used to seeing, okay? So it'll be a little bit of a challenge, but I believe we are up for the challenge. Now the first thing we're going to talk about in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 is about how slaves are to treat their masters. Now you may think, what's that got to do with anything? Well, Here's the deal. When we as Americans think of slavery, we think of pre-Civil War slavery like was in America. Um, That is not really the case for these guys. Um, There are different kinds of slavery that have been throughout history. You know, there's, there's conquest slavery where one group or country or tribe or whatever says, hey, I want their stuff. So they go over and they take over and they steal their stuff and they conquer them and they enslave the people. Then there's debt slavery. That is where you cannot pay what you owe. And so in order to have that debt forgiven, you have to work it off. Uh, You couldn't just file bankruptcy. So there's debt slavery. And then there's indentured servitude, which is Kind of like debt slavery, except you choose it, right? You choose to get yourself into it. Uh, Historians estimate that between one half and two thirds of the white immigrants from Europe to uh, the United States came as indentured servants. They came here, they couldn't afford to come here, so they, they paid, they got somebody else to pay, and they would come over and work for that person or company in order to work off that debt. And then there is that evil that we know about in America that was racially based slavery. And then there is modern slavery. Guys, I was amazed to learn that there's an estimated 27 million slaves on planet Earth today, which is more than at any time in history. If that is amazing to you, it was amazing to me and horrifying. Guys, human trafficking is alive and well in the United States, but also around the world. Now, Paul was not endorsing slavery. He was telling Christians how to function in that reality that they found themselves in in the New Testament. Now, guys, the Great Commission is more important than any social justice cause. Uh, Paul believed the gospel above all. We had that as our, as our slogan for the SBC last year. It wasn't just the slogan to Paul. It was the way he lived every day was the gospel above everything else. Read with me 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants... Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things." 
So Paul is talking about slavery, right? He had the perfect opportunity to just condemn all slavery, right? He had it right here. He could have said slavery is, is against uh, creation. I mean, God created people equal. He created them all in God's image. So slavery is evil. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ban it from here on. Paul could have done that. He did not, though. And we need to look at why that is. Now, the African slave trade that we're, we're familiar with that happened in this country and modern human trafficking are both already condemned in Scripture with the death penalty. All right. If we look in Exodus 21 and 16, it is rather clear. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. All right. Now, that's not indentured servitude. That's not debt-based slavery. That is like the African slave trade was and like human trafficking is today. You steal somebody against their will and force them into servitude. And the result of that should be death for the one who does it. Now, notice also that it's not just the one who takes the person. It's, it's anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So anyone who owned that slave or anyone who trafficked that slave from one person to another should also be put to death. Now, guys, do you see what I'm saying about a blind spot? Now, I realize all of us realize that, that the African slave trade was evil. But there were folks, guys, there were Christians, there were Southern Baptists who were engaged in the slave trade and the owning of slaves. How could that happen? It's a blind spot for them because of the culture they lived in. So what we need to see is, if the Bible says it, we need to be able to take those blinders off and realize the truth of it, even if it's not the truth according to our culture. And guys, even if it's not the truth according to our church culture, we need to be able to examine the Word of God and see through those blind spots. Let me add that any notion of, of racial or ethnic superiority is antithetical to Scripture. Guys, all of us came from Adam and Eve, right? All of us, regardless of how much pigmentation we have in our skin. That's irrelevant. Guys, I'm whiter than Jesus, and he is clearly superior to me, right? Uh, now, you may say, well, don't you mean whiter than Jesus was? No, there is a man in heaven right now. Jesus is in heaven right now, a man for all the rest of eternity. And he is a Middle Eastern man who is darker than I am. It has nothing to do with anything. Racial or ethnic superiority comes from Darwinian evolution, not biblical revelation. Now, Darwin was a sexist and a racist. Darwin said in uh, his Origin of Species, he was saying, hey, the, the European uh, races are far superior than those more savage races, and I predict that we will uh, annihilate them, okay? The survival of the fittest. Darwin thought that white folks were more fit than darker folks, and so we were going to eradicate them. That is Darwinian evolution, not biblical scripture. And, you know, he also thought women were inferior. He said, plainly, women have smaller brains, therefore they are inferior. They're not able to think logically um, and rationally, so we need to tell them what to do. All right? Darwin was a jerk. 
Darwin was very politically incorrect, and yet tons of people subscribed to his notions. And we don't talk about what a jerk he was. But that is where that thinking comes from. We don't want to have any part of that. Now listen, in the New Testament times, uh, if you were in debt, you had to work yourself out of that debt. There was no welfare state, okay? You couldn't just say, I don't feel like working, so I'm going to hang around and not work, and the government will pay me. Bernie wasn't there yet. I mean, Bernie might have been there soon after this, but (laughs) Bernie hadn't been born yet, okay? And so he wasn't going to take other people's money and give it to you. So you had to work, and if you got yourself into debt, you had to work to get out of it. Many of these slaves were more like indentured servants than what we think of as slavery. Now, it wasn't a good situation. They had to serve somebody, and they had to answer to somebody. And if the person was abusive to them, they couldn't say, I resign and give them a letter and go somewhere else. So it was still bad, right? But it was just more like indentured servitude. Now, these servants are, are required by Paul in Scripture here in verse 1 to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Were they deserving of all honor? Well, some of them probably were. Some of them were probably really good to these servants, and they were deserving of honor, but a whole bunch of them probably weren't. But that wasn't the criteria. It had nothing to do with Paul's command. The reason that Paul commanded this was so that the name of God and the teaching, which of course is the gospel, may not be reviled. And these, these masters who are worthy, you know, count them, regard them worthy of honor, were not believers. Because in verse 1, it, it talks about them. And then verse 2, it says, but you're believing masters. You ought to be even more happy to work for them. So the masters that were to be shown honor weren't even believers. And they probably weren't, certainly weren't always worthy of honor. But that wasn't the point. The point was the gospel above all. The point was their testimony. The point was the Great Commission. Now in verse 2, Paul says that you should be doubly glad to serve a believer because as you serve the believer, you benefit the believer and therefore you benefit the kingdom of God. If you make that believer richer, that's a good thing because he'll support the work of the kingdom of God. If you do good work for a believer, that benefits the believer, benefits the kingdom. It's all good. And then he says, but don't take advantage of a brother who is your master. Uh, guys, I know this is, is not the same. It's not uh, because like a, if you're in slavery, you can't put in your resignation, right? <laughs> but but there is a parallel between this servitude and our work. We need to learn what that is and apply that. We need to be the most honest, the most hardworking, and the most joyful employees that anybody has. Why? Because of the reputation of God and the cause of the Great Commission, right? We need to be the best of servants. We need to be the best of employees. And then, it's, and then we need to take that parallel and not take advantage of our Christian bosses either. If we have a boss who's a Christian, we don't need to say, hey man, you and I are both believers and you of all people should understand that I need next week off because uh, you know, I'm getting ready for Christmas and I got all these rehearsals at church. You know, we don't need to take advantage of our Christian bosses. As a matter of fact, we need to be the hardest working, first there kind of guys we can be. So it's the same motivation. Our witness and the gospel need to be established and credible 
because of the kind of people we are, because of the kind of employees, employers, neighbors, whatever that we are, we need to establish a credibility for our gospel witness. Now guys, physical slavery is awful, but it's not the only kind of slavery there is. In John eight thirty one through 34, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So guys, we do have an estimated 27 million people in slavery today, but that's physical slavery. That doesn't include the spiritual slavery. So what might you be enslaved to? Uh, Might you be enslaved to religion? Guys, religion has a lot of people enslaved to it. If you were here for our study of Job, then Mark taught us real clearly from Scripture that all false religion, all false religion, is a quid pro quo situation. We do something in order to get something from God. And a lot, billions of people on this planet are enslaved to false religion. Are you enslaved to lust? There are a lot, guys, internet pornography is one of the fastest growing and has been one of the fastest growing industries in this country. People are enslaved to drugs and alcohol, even prescription drugs. Even people who don't mean to be good, decent, law-abiding people get addicted and enslaved by these drugs. Are you enslaved to worry? Uh, guys, that's a, that's a pretty acceptable sin, isn't it? We cannot trust God. We can worry. We can spend our life worrying about things that mostly won't happen and be enslaved to that. The gospel, though, can set you free. What about success? And that's not the same thing as money. Some of us really want to succeed for the sake of our ego so that people will give us affirmation, right? Success enslaves people. Money certainly enslaves people. Approval. Guys, there are are folks on Instagram, uh, there are women on Instagram who will put things on Instagram trying desperately to incite lust in other people. And when they get a lot of lust incited in other people, they are really delighted and happy and fulfilled. Uh, man, that's a, that's a bad idol. Because in 20 or 30 years, that just ain't going to work anymore, right? <laughs> so that idol is going to give up on them. But all of these things that people are enslaved to are really different expressions of self-idolatry. All idols will disappoint one day soon. The world tells you to love yourself, right? Uh, That's a constant message, that we are to love ourselves. Guys, that comes naturally. We love ourselves plenty. The only thing that can deliver us from self-idolatry is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now guys, have you ever been driving along and you're in the right lane, you're minding your own business, but you're coming up behind somebody and they're going a little slower. And you, you know, you glance out here, you look in your mirror, you look in your other mirror, you hit your signal, and you start to move over, and you hear a honk, right, coming out of nowhere. And you go, oh man, where did that person come from? And you jump back in your lane. And they were in your blind spot, right? 
all right, I've got a car now that has a little light on there. And if somebody's in my blind spot, that light shines. The reason they had to invent that is because there is a blind spot and people cause accidents by running into folks that way. So blind spots are hard to see, right? So we can look back and say slavery was a blind spot for American Christians. Kind of an astonishing blind spot. Because as we read in Exodus, the penalty for that kind of slavery, owning people, taking people against their will and forcing them into servitude, selling them, kidnapping them, them, owning them, was all punishable by death according to God. It's pretty clear. And yet we had American Christians who couldn't see that because they had that blind spot. Now we can look back on them and wonder how in the world. What we've got to do, though, what our challenge is to see our blind spot today. And one of those, at least one of those, is materialism. Guys, we've got to open our eyes to the spiritual need around us. Your stewardship team, uh, I bragged on them a few weeks ago. I'm bragging on them again. They increased the percentage that this church gives to the cooperative program. The cooperative program takes money from... When you give to the church, we take part of it and we send it to the state cooperative program. The state takes part of it and they send part of it on to the national Southern Baptists. And so guys, that money makes its way with, very, with an amazingly small amount of overhead, by the way, to foreign missions and to our seminaries and to um, you know, the North American Mission Board, the foreign uh, mission board, all these things that are so good that that we Southern Baptists enjoy participating in. But guys, there is such spiritual need out there. There are billions and billions of people on the earth that don't follow Christ. And there are even billions who have never heard the name of Christ. And so guys, I think 200 years from now, folks may look back at us and go, how could they be so affluent so rich, have so many resources, and be so very blind to the spiritual need around them. We need to check ourselves, and that's the hard part of this sermon, okay? That's the hard part. We've got to actually spend the time and effort thinking about this to see if this is a blind spot for us. But not only a spiritual need, there's physical needs around the world that are so desperate. Guys, Christians on average give 2.5% of their income to the church. 2.5%. We've got to do better than that. Guys, financial, I was a financial planner back in the day before I got into ministry. And uh, I was talking to a pastor one time. And I went to the pastor's house to meet with him to do his financial planning. And I got there and it was, it was not a... You know, it wasn't a mansion, but it was a nice house. He had a couple of cars in the driveway that were way, way, way newer than anything Melissa and I owned back then. So really, really nice cars. And uh, I was glad the guy was doing well. And, you know, when you're a financial planner, you want to have something to plan with, right? So if you drive up to a good house with good cars, that's a good sign. So I walked in and I started talking to him. And the first thing I asked him was, what is your primary goal for meeting with me? He said, well... I want to get to where I can tithe. Mercy. Uh, This guy was a pastor, okay? And I was thinking, 
I am glad I don't go to your church, right? That was the first thing I thought. Um, guys, materialism is so hard to see because we think we need the stuff, right? I mean, we need a car. We need a house. Do we need a huge house? I don't know. I don't know. Do we? <laughs> do we need a super nice car? I don't know. Do we? Those are things we've got to ask ourselves. And God is not opposed to us having things. He's not opposed to us being rich at all. As a matter of fact, he blessed Abraham. He blessed these guys by giving them a lot of wealth. David was rich. Solomon was the richest guy ever, right? It's not bad to have wealth. But we all need to check ourselves to see if we're using it the best way. We're going to read 1 Timothy 6, 3 through 10. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, now we're going to, these false teachers, we're going to check out what these false teachers were all about. And does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We need that on some coffee mugs and stuff, don't we? That is a powerful verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich... Not those who are rich, those whose desire is to be rich. Fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice the cravings of these false teachers. You know, we talked a little earlier about things that enslave us, right? And drugs and alcohol, you get a, you get a powerful craving for something that's going to harm you. Well, these guys had a powerful craving. Uh, they, were, they were in spiritual slavery. Let's read verses 4 and 5 again. He is puffed up with conceit. And understands nothing. This is a false teacher. He has an unhealthy craving, right? For controversy, for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. And constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And then verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich desire to be rich, fall into temptation. They have a craving for money and wealth. Into a snare, into senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So they crave, they desire this unhealthy stuff. What do they want? They want controversy and they want money. We must not cave or tolerate, uh, cave to these people that that teach this, that want controversy and money. We can't crave it ourselves, and we can't tolerate it when it's in the church. 
you know, the spiritual division comes from this. False teachers have a deadly combination of arrogance and ignorance. Guys, a lot of people have that. (laughs) If you come in and you speak confidently, you can do that if you have arrogance, but it doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. So if you have arrogance and ignorance, you can come in and you can have influence if a church is not wise and doesn't take care. That leads to division and dysfunction in the church. Church discipline is needed for situations like that. And guys, church discipline is not enjoyable. It's painful, but it's ultimately beneficial. We need to think rightly about church discipline before we ever have a need to exercise church discipline, right? If we had a problem in our church, if there was something that needed to be addressed, and then we started thinking about church discipline issues, we would be way, way too late. We need to think about it ahead of time, think rightly about it, and then if situations do occur where people are coming in here and they love controversy and they love arguing about specific words and they try to sow discord and they uh, get friction going in the church, we need to already know how to deal with it. False teachers also crave money. Guys, that has been a thing for 2,000 years, right? Uh, I want to show you a clip. Uh, What we're going to look at is, first of all, this goes back to these guys in the Ephesian church, right, that Paul is condemning. And then we saw the sale of indulgences happening in the Catholic church, and that's part of what sparked the Protestant uh, Revolution, the Reformation is that folks would sell what they call indulgences. Now, an indulgence is something that gets, it's a kind of get out of purgatory free card. And so if you gave a bunch of money, they would give you indulgences. And that would knock off your time in purgatory or knock off the time of a relative in purgatory. Um, They were, this was a German phenomenon, but translated into English, uh, they had a little, uh, a little jingle to go with it that said, basically, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. I mean, that's just clever marketing, isn't it? And so they were using godliness, <laughs> something about God anyway, as a means of gain. And guys, folks hadn't stopped doing that to this day. Now it's called the prosperity gospel. And what it says is if you make me rich, then God is obligated to do stuff for you. Uh, It's ingenious, really, though. It's insidious and ingenious. Because if it doesn't work, it's your fault. You know why? (laughs) Because you didn't have enough faith or because you didn't give enough money. So the prosperity preacher can stand up here and lie to you all day long. And then if you find out he's lying, it's not his fault. It's your fault. Because you weren't faithful enough or you didn't give enough money. Now we're going to watch a clip here about, we're going to see somebody that is is greedy for money. Now he's asking folks to give money. Is he asking people to give money to feed the hungry? No. To provide clean drinking water for people in third world countries? No. Is he asking for money for missions? No. He's asking for money and he says, hey, if you give me money, Your bills will be paid. Show us that, Angie.
is paid, throw money at their feet so they can dance in it. What do you know? It's a prosperity gospel with a string attached. That string is words, and that means it's no gospel at all. Amen. All right, guys, they have a big old crowd on Sunday morning, okay? <laughs> Invite your friends to where they will hear the real gospel. Uh, guys, ah, mercy. They throw money down, and these guys sound like a train. They go, woo, and they run around and step on it. And the reason is so that you'll get rich, right? You give them money, and God is obligated then. He's over a barrel to make you rich. Oh, that's odd. Isn't it horrible? Isn't it offensive to you? All right, we need to guard against that, but I think most of us are safe there. The thing we are less safe from, though, guys, is hoarding the money that we have, finding our security in our money. Now, what does Paul say we should be like? Let's look in verses 6 through 8 in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Uh, this is a hard sermon to preach, because I'm not there yet. I haven't arrived there. I need to arrive there. But guys, we, we don't think that way, do we? I mean, after all, we're going to retire someday. We've got to have some money laid back. And there's nothing wrong with planning for the future. There's nothing wrong with planning for retirement. What I'm saying, guys, is it can't be just our default position. We can't be blind to the need around us. There's spiritual darkness all over this world, all over this community. There are people starving that don't have to starve if we'll be generous to them. How much should we give? I, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't. What we do need to do, though, is examine ourselves and pray and try to figure out, are we doing what we need to do? And guys, I'm not saying you're not doing what you need to do. You may be doing exactly what you need to do. But let's ask the question, because this is a spot that we tend to be incredibly blind to. There's spiritual need, there's physical need, and when you look at that that's around us, how much should we give? Probably a lot. Give generously. But not only should we give generously, we should steward wisely. Guys, I'm, we're meeting with our Matt team today, and we're going to talk about a lot of things. But one of the things I'm constantly concerned about is that we steward wisely. Guys, people give their money. They don't give it to the crazy dudes on TV, right? They give it to the church. They give it to God, and when they give it to God, we need to make sure that we are wise stewards of what they give. And, uh, and like I was saying, your uh, stewardship team, increasing the percentage going to the cooperative program, that's good stuff. That's the way we need to be thinking. The only way we can do this, though, really, is through finding contentment in Christ. And guys, if, I, uh, if my bank account's not at a certain point, I get jumpy, and I bet all of us do. So, again, there's nothing wrong with saving. There's nothing wrong with planning for the future. But just take this opportunity to take a look and see if we're where we need to be. Now, let me read this to you. And, guys, this is where you're going to have to take the blinders all the way off. Let's look in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. 
This is Jesus speaking. And he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now guys, we can't take it with us. We read that in First Timothy, right? But we can send it on ahead. We can lay up treasure in heaven. So think about that. What do we do? All right. When I, when I preach a sermon to you and when the Lord deals with me on a subject, I want us to respond to it. If we don't respond to it, we've missed the boat, right? So if this is a blind spot, then you'll have to work to see it. Do that work. Think about this. Pray about this. Read what the Word says about it. Read that passage in Matthew six nineteen through 21. Pray through it. Think about it. Talk with your spouse if you have one. And decide if you are doing what you need to do. And if you're not, do more. The other thing is, let's find contentment in Christ. Uh, guys, if... <laughs> I don't mean to be political, but I'm just going to say something that's irrefutably correct. If we elect a communist... We're going to be in trouble financially soon. So, I'm, well, I'm sorry, socialist there. <laughs> if, if we elect a socialist, we're going to be in trouble very soon. Find your contentment in Christ. Guys, all slavery to self, all, all slavery to idolatry, which is really all self-idolatry, and slavery to money can be overcome by the freedom found in the gospel. What the gospel says is that we have rebelled against God. We've sinned. He said, do this. We shook our little hands, fists at him and said, no, we're not going to do it. And he said, don't do these things. And we said, we're going to do what we want to do. We rebelled against God. Our four parents chose to believe the word of a serpent over the word of their creator. And that got us into a lot of trouble. But it wasn't just their fault. We ratify that decision that they made every time that we sinned. And so we're separated from God because of that. Now, we couldn't fix it either. I mean, there was nothing we could do to get back to perfect. So what God did was send his perfect son to live a, a life of righteousness on our behalf and to die a death that we deserved. Now, guys, the, the amazing news that we find in 2 Corinthians 5 at the end of it there is that he made him, and that's God the Father made Jesus the Son, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what he'll do is Christ will take all of our sin which he paid for on the cross and he will credit to us all of Christ's righteousness. That way we can be saved if we place our faith in Christ's finished work on the cross and his resurrection and his works. You know, people say we're not saved by works. We are saved by works, but they're all Jesus' works. We are saved by placing our faith in him and repenting of our sins. If you have never done that, don't leave here today without doing that. 